Welcome back, everyone, to LA Not So Confidential. I'm Dr. Shiloh, and I am here with Dr. Scott. Hey, Dr. Scott. Hey, Dr. Shiloh. How are you? It seems like it has been forever. This has been a wild month. We've been so busy. We needed it. Yeah. Thank you, everyone, for letting us take a little time off. We appreciate you. And we needed it. We are busy, work stuff, other sort of podcast adjacent things, and we're ready to be back in the swing of it. So again, thanks for bearing with us. And we hope for those of you that hadn't heard it before that you enjoyed what we released last time, which was a live stream from... About this time last year, and it was Vintage Hollywood, the Fatty Arbuckle and Francis Farmer cases that we took a look at. And little departure for us because we just sort of told these classic Hollywood stories in terms of the crimes associated with them, some mental health issues, some addiction issues, right? and kind of took you through that. So yeah, go back and check it out. If you haven't, it was episode... 91, in case you missed it. But we're back with a brand new episode with you today that we know people have been really asking to hear about. However, housekeeping first. Well, I was going to add on to what you said, Dr. Shiloh, about last year's episode, which was also last week's, is (laughs) that the mental health issues have really a lot to do with the episode that we're putting out today because Francis Farmer was considered likely to have a diagnosis of bipolar disorder, Mm. or maybe she was just an independent woman. And that's what we did is we diagnosed inappropriately women at that time. And then also there was a sexual assault that occurred in Fatty Arbuckle's case. So the pressures of celebrities certainly had something to do with those two examples as they will today with what we're talking about. But going forward, housekeeping. We are gearing up for CrimeCon. We've also narrowed down a date for another Hollywood true crime walking tour with our wonderful friends over at CLA in a day. Patreon members get first look at the details and first dibs on reserving spots. We are looking to have another big group like we did last time. It was a blast. I think that I, I was not expecting our tour guide to be as entertaining and unbelievably knowledgeable as he was. It was really great. Also, he messaged us because I think he saw our episode last week and said there might even be some Francis Farmer talk on the tour that he's curating for us. Awesome. Awesome. Yes. 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 Very knowledgeable guy. So jumping into today, you all have been asking. So we finally figured out a way to talk about the issues here. And I think we're going to... Follow a bit of the formula that we did with our Brittany episode in in laying out why we're talking about it right off the top, but also parsing it out as far as what are the issues here? What are we talking about diagnostically, which we get to do in this case. We didn't with Brittany because we didn't have any definitive information, nor does that matter. Is it any of our business? <laughs> or self-admission. That's, right. that's also a big difference. If she was coming forward and acknowledging this is what my diagnosis is and I'm going to talk about it in public, yeah. that would be different. This is a different issue because the people that we are talking about have come forward right. with their diagnoses. Right. So, Yeah, yeah, There's let let us give you a bit of a trigger warning too. So as you can tell from the title, we are going to be discussing bipolar disorder and the behaviors and symptoms that come along with that. And then additionally, the behaviors that may be indicative of intimate partner violence or IPV, as it's called in our work. Sure, sure. We're we're not going to hone in on that too much. We've done many other episodes really teasing that out, but there might be some triggering information here for some folks. So we need to get that to you off the top. All right, Kanye. (laughs) 
No. <laughs> yes. We we are not going to be commenting directly on his mental health from an evaluative perspective. You guys know that we cannot do that, nor do I really have the interest in doing that, to be honest. However, we know that many people are concerned, confused about what they've been seeing in social media, in pop culture. And I mean, it it's like every time something happens, somebody is sending us a direct message with a new link to something that is going on in the public space. And thank you guys for doing that. Because to be honest, this isn't really something that I keep front and center in my world. But it's clear that it's very important to a lot of people and confusing and concerning. And that's why we chose to talk about it because I think a lot of it is what we see a lot of today with social media and celebrity and rushing to judgment and what is really going on here. Not that we have all of the answers, but it it felt like an appropriate way for us to at least tackle some of these things. So again, like our Free Britney episode, we are talking about somebody's mental health and someone's mental health even a celebrity who's in the public spotlight and has a known disorder to go along with it. It's none of our business in a sense of asking these questions and why, you know, how are they getting treatment? And supposing or surmising. Right. But the difference here is that it has very much been all over the place lately. Not that that changes our attitude or way we're going to go about it, but we're we're going to get into all of those, those ins and outs. So... Dr. Scott, let me ask you this. And you and I, like we mentioned at the top, have been completely swamped with our own stuff lately. Right, right. But what do you think the draw and the interest has been in this case? Kind of unlike anything we've seen, at least recently, I think. Yeah, I guess I would say I don't know if it's necessarily a lot unlike anything that we've seen. I do think that there is uh, a contrast that we're going to get more into about how we perceive men versus women mm-hmm. in situations like this. But look, what we've got here, this is this is the way I've been framing it, is this is a case with two very high visibility, high influence celebrities who have both lived for years pretty much in echo chambers, supported by a lot of money, a lot of success. Kim's fortune has been made on the machinations of social media supported by where all of us are as a culture. We, whether you like her, hate her, whatever, any energy you put towards Kim Kardashian only goes to support what she is. And I have no judgment about that. I mean, I do sometimes, but like from a clinical and from a professional level, it's like, well, this is just what the world is, right? Keeping Up With The Kardashians was on for 20 seasons over 14 years. And while reality shows are by no means real, folks, and and I wouldn't think that any of our listeners would have fallen for that at any time. Kim and her family have been a major influence on the culture of celebrity where an individual becomes famous just for being famous. And in this case, became famous because of the release of a sex tape. Again, I don't have any judgment on whether somebody films themselves. I I don't understand necessarily the release of it. It sounds like it was not necessarily a planned release, like some releases happen today, but it happened. And she was able to carve out a path from it with the help of producers who thought it would be interesting and create an audience. Again, whether you like it or not, she's clearly successful by the metric of economics and finances. Her current listed worth is $1.8 billion. Oh, good Lord. Yeah. And she represents for many fans a window into what I would say is an exclusive world of fashion, music, aesthetic beauty. And of course, with that much money, a lot can be achieved. You can do a lot with a lot of that kind of money. Yee 
uh, formerly known as Kanye Omari West, is considered by people who are way more experienced and knowledge individuals than me, consider him to be a musical genius. And this is due to his use of lyrics, his observation and commentary on the minutia of culture, as well as the incredibly high level of production and collaboration that goes into his recordings. He doesn't collaborate with people that are not talented. Oh so my gosh. And really... the people he's been able... And just, this goes, This is so personalized, but to be able to collaborate with Daft Punk and sample their stuff is like beyond to me. And then yeah. some of the artwork and you know, one of my favorite pop culture artists, he got to do album covers. There's just been some wild stuff that he has really reached for the stars and gotten it to happen. Yeah. And he, he makes it happen. I mean... A lot of fans and critics alike believe that he's able to have a wider audience than a lot of other musicians because of exactly what you're talking about. So he's ventured into other areas of creativity, including fashion, with varying levels of success. And his net worth is also $1.8 billion. Yi has made really controversial statements on a number of subjects. He really proves to be divisive in some segments of his fan base, yeah. yet also continues to get a great deal of, you know, kind of a shrugging shoulders of, well, it's Yi, you know, and, and he, Kanye Yi, has an extremely controversial alignments politically, including his own assertions for running for president in the past, as well as some really obtuse statements on race. And within that context of discussion about race, his views on individual choice versus institutional racism are very, very controversial right. and very triggering for a lot of people. So look, that's a long-winded way of saying that these two individuals are firmly ensconced in current culture. And it provides entertainment for the masses who are either rooting for success or hungry for blood and to view a spectacle. And I don't necessarily think that that's very different from how we've always viewed celebrities. I think there's a part of that. This one is just all of that on steroids. Yeah. I do think it's really interesting to look at how our society views the antics of male celebrities versus female celebrities, how it's perceived and how it's likely to be presented in the media. Um, it just seems to me that a lot of male behavior gets excused, whereas female erratic behavior gets really shamed. I think sure. we're better about it now in the last few years than we have in the past. But I mean, there's just been historic examples of where, you know, it's the boys will be boys sort of argument for excuses for terrible behavior. But right, look, and their their careers seem not to suffer as much as exactly. women when that happens as well. Ex exactly. They don't end up like Francis Farmer and some of these other people ending up, you know, working in retail again. It just doesn't yeah. generally happen. Media in the entertainment industry, it doesn't run the way it did in previous decades. And in many ways, that's an excellent thing. Our experience as observers watching the unfolding of the Harvey Weinstein issues with his horrific sexual assaults and his destruction of actors' careers is really an illustration of how rough things can get behind the scenes at the very highest level. Now, all of that being said, in the past, there's generally been a publicity machine that crafts an image and a brand for a celebrity, guiding them towards decisions on how to present themselves and how to maintain the brand so that it benefits them now and a decade down the line. And I think that the shift in our culture towards more high-powered celebrities with a less structured career trajectory seems to forego the guidance of managers, agents, publicists in favor of creating an entourage environment of yes-men who are on the celebrities' payroll. And I think we're seeing more of that more as more money gets in. And maybe there is 
culturally in the music industry for some of the artists that have come up over the past decades, there's more of a prestige around that, that I travel with my posse, with my my entourage. Yeah. Can you imagine what a shift it was for publicists when celebrities had their own social media in hand and could go live at any time, could post whatever they wanted. There has got to be such a shift in control of structuring that presentation that you're talking about that is just the Wild West. Yeah, I definitely know, like we've talked about our friend, our dear friend Sharon Sachs, who is on Broadway right now as Madame Morrible in the Broadway show Wicked. And it's fascinating to hear about how social media is controlled for them. Sharon is still on social media as my friend Sharon, but if she does anything that represents the show, it mm-hmm. has to be cleared through multiple, multiple levels. And that oh, means yeah. like, it means she can't, you know, put on her marble costume and go like... Shopping cl- at Trader Joe's. <laughs> club a baby seal or something, because that oh, would be a bad damn. thing. Not that Sharon would ever club a baby seal, but you know what I'm <laughs> saying. But yeah, you're right. I mean, it's like they've got to be just quaking in their boots when like someone who's a huge moneymaker is on a bender and posting on yep. Twitter. And we see that. Oh, yeah. In fact, it, it, that has led to the emergence of a completely different type of industry, which is internet scrubbing, where you have uh-huh. companies that go in, get all your passwords for you, and they go and they scrub years and years of data. And they literally spent, send spider bots through the internet to delete posts about you or things that you might have said, which I may need, re- even though I'm not a celebrity, I probably need that. But Ooh, look, let's... You heard it first, guys. Go screenshot. Right, (laughs) right. So introduce a little bit more. What we're talking about here is so interesting because Kanye has self-disclosed that he has been diagnosed with bipolar disorder. He has also talked about an addiction to opiates as well as being very forthcoming with the trauma attached to the tragic loss of his mother in 2007, as well as the pressures of celebrity and being able to talk about that in very appropriate ways at times. You know, not this is not a person that is just sort of acting out or out of control or in the midst of, you know, some of his episodes. He's been able to articulate some of these things very, very well. And a huge, you know, in bold, underline red font, I want to put here that by no means are we indicating bipolar means dangerousness or means that anyone diagnosed with bipolar disorder has even tendencies to be violent or dangerous or threatening. So, you know, when we get to talking about some of the concerning behaviors, just please don't misunderstand us there. Absolutely. I mean, we... And we've said that many times in our episodes, and we will continue to say it, the overwhelming number of people that are diagnosed with mental illness do not go on to become a danger to themselves or to the community. However, certain diagnoses in certain situations can meet at a very significant nexus. They can result in events like the worst possible combination of factors coming together along with a person who is not in their most controlled state can be a very unpleasant experience. Again, these are thankfully, they're very, very rare. Yep. So let's go into a rundown of what has been transpiring in this case. I think we need a little context, a little history. You know, we got people that I'm sure are living under a, a very comfortable rock that we're happy to let in on what's been going on. So Kim and Kanye started, although they started dating in 2012, they actually met back in 2002 or 2003 when they were both on set together with the singer Brandy, who Kanye was working with and Kim happened to be friends with. And they stayed in touch occasionally, of course, crossing paths 
dads running in some of the same circles and then got together in a dating capacity not long after Kim had divorced, married, and then very quickly divorced Chris Humphreys. So by the end of 2012, Kanye and Kim were pregnant with their first child and then they married the following year. In December of 2016, the public was made aware of Kanye being hospitalized for psychiatric reasons. We didn't really know much other than that, but Kim was supportive through and through. There, of course, were some rumors of some stressors in the relationship, but I think to myself, well, yes, of course, being in a partnership, being a family member of somebody with a mental illness is incredibly stressful and tough on relationships. So I wouldn't expect anything else, to be honest. And then in August 2018, Kanye ends up making headlines for a series of really controversial comments, bizarre Twitter rants. You know, some of this is just rising to the platform of social media on a more consistent basis. He and Kim go on to have three other children. And then in July 2020, I think this really was a pivotal point where this got onto people's radar because Kanye confirms well, announces that he's going to be running for president in 2020. And during his first rally, which is in South Carolina, which is recorded by people's cell phones, you can YouTube it if you like. He's on a stage talking and he reveals a very private, personal family matter between him and Kim. And that was just a a, a pivotal moment where... Then I think Kim and her family said, we we have to sort of address this because that wasn't cool for him to talk about that. And after we get a little bit more into bipolar disorder and what manic episodes are, I think it should be really clear that this is probably what was going on for him at the time. But I think it's important because I want to read the social media post that Kim put out after this incident. Although I'm sure troubling and not great to have your husband talk about some of these things in public. She came back with what I thought was a really beautiful post where she says, quote, as many of you know, Kanye has bipolar disorder. Anyone who has this or has a loved one in their life who does knows how incredibly complicated and painful it is to understand. I've never spoken publicly about how this has affected us at home because I'm very protective of our children and Kanye's right to privacy when it comes to his health. But today, I feel like I should comment on it because of the stigma and misconceptions about mental health. Those that understand mental illness or even compulsive behavior know that the family is powerless unless the member is a minor. People who are unaware or far removed from this experience can be judgmental and not understand that the individual themselves have to engage in the process of getting help no matter how hard family and friends try. I understand Kanye is subject to criticism because he's a public figure and his actions at times can cause strong opinions and emotions. He's a brilliant but complicated person who on top of the pressures of being an artist and a Black man who experienced the painful loss of his mother and has to deal with the pressure and isolation that is heightened by his bipolar disorder. Those who are close with Kanye know his heart and understand his words sometimes do not align with his intentions. Living with bipolar disorder does not diminish or invalidate his dreams or his creative ideas, no matter how big or unattainable they may feel to some. That is part of his genius. And as we have all witnessed, many of his big dreams have come true. We as a society talk about giving grace to the issue of mental health as a whole. However, we should also give it to the individuals who are living with it in times when they need it the most. I kindly ask that the media and public give us the compassion and empathy that is needed so that we can get through this. Thank you 
for those who have expressed concern for Kanye's well-being and for your understanding with love and gratitude, Kim Kardashian West. So I think it really gives insight into a, a family member who's educated on this, a family member who has experienced the struggle, but also it's giving us a window into what it's like for them being in a fishbowl that they live in. Well, and just asking for some compassion. I, I like how it's constructed. I like how it flows. There's a, a great organization to it. It's a great practical message. I also am pretty sure, of course, I don't, I don't have any evidence to this, but from my comparing that to some other things that she's written, I would think that she got a lot of guidance from someone who is a professional and absolutely knows what they're talking about, which is okay. And that's sure. what one of the things that I would want to say that, you know, I think she's doing right in this moment is anytime you're in this situation, she absolutely hits it on the head is you do not have control over what mm -hmm. that person has unless they're a minor. And even if they're a minor, your options are not numerous. You have a couple yeah. of options available sure. to you. But in this situation, I think what they did was they consulted with probably part of their machine and the publicist went and got like an expert and said, you know, they consulted, they got psychoeducated, which every family needs to. And, and as Absolutely. we've said before, anybody here in this position, please go check out the NAMI website, M-A-N-A-M-I.org. It's a nationwide organization for families and friends of the mentally ill or people with mental and emotional challenges. And it is a wealth of knowledge, a lot like this was presented that will help people find the resources that they need. Yeah. Yeah. I found it was very, you know, kind of walk that line between personal, but also almost as if she's providing some psychoeducation to us, which was smart. And as the wife of someone who's struggling with this, especially Kim, you know, somebody who has completed law school and passed at least the baby bar. I don't know what she's done beyond that, but I'm sure she's a woman that wants to educate herself on this. I thought she didn't complete law school. Wasn't that the whole thing that that she passed the baby bar without going to law school? Because you don't have to go to law school. Oh, well, I guess I'll have to look that up and see if she completed yeah, or not. I'm not sure. But I do like this. I like, I think that the way that was phrased and the way it was sent out, given her unbelievable number of social media followers, oh. like there was a lot of good done in that, like just yeah. in those basic statements of educating people. There's a lot to be said for that. Right. So from this situation, from here on now, it seems that his illness was very tough on the family, on the relationship. Again, especially being in the public light. Kim ends up filing for divorce in January of 2021. Although she completely continues to support his creative projects, participating in fashion shows of his, being there on the sidelines for him, and continuing to co-parent with him. Later in last year, November of 2021, Kim starts dating Pete Davidson after her appearance on SNL, which in her monologue, among many other troubling things about her monologue, but that's a different podcast. <laughs> she actually mentions that she divorced her husband, which in fact, they weren't really divorced at the time yet, nor are they even as we're recording this, even though they're both granted legal single status. But this gets a reaction out of him. He, he reacts as upset by this in interviews and seems to be really triggered. And also it's sort of coupled with professing a desire to be back together with her through social media posts and verbally as well. Fast forward a couple of months, just January of 2022, he is creating new music and there's some lyrics constructed about wanting to quote, beat P. 
Pete Davidson's ass. There's also some other behavior that has people concerned where he is driving and he's live streaming at the same time saying he wasn't invited to his daughter's birthday party. And he's like desperately driving around trying to find the location. So there's element, this element of like, oof, why are we're getting this window into this family conflict that seems a little dicey, almost like people are like tuning in what's going to happen here. And then last month, February of 2022, he takes to social media to sort of flush out some parenting differences regarding their oldest child's social media use. And then finally, just this month, a judge, as I alluded to, then declares that they are both legally single as the divorce proceedings are pending. Now, in the last several weeks, we have seen an escalation of online acting out and back and forth with the situation that Kim is dating Pete Davidson and back and forth between Kanye and Pete. Then Kanye releases a music video depicting the kidnapping of Pete Davidson, as well as the burying alive of him and decapitation of him. So this is clearly where people are like, what is happening? They're very concerned. You know, is it threatening? Is it art? Is it stalking? Or... Is this mental, just mental illness on display for all of us to see because it involves one of the most famous people on earth right now? So I think that's where people have these questions and, and hence, you know, why we felt like people wanted to hear a little bit from us. Yeah. I think it's an escalation in behaviors is what I, you know, in, in my day to day work, we look at the escalating of behaviors, not even necessarily concerned what a diagnosis is, is that Mm -hmm. let's look at how much in what way with what historical factors and then we put it through a rubric which is an evaluation of how much risk is actually imminent at this time so these are just odd behaviors and nothing necessarily imminent right now but i i it did lead to a lot of speculation and i thought that there was some very interesting dialogue that came along because following that there was an interaction between Ye and late night talk show host Trevor Noah. And his quote is so beautifully written. I want to share it as well. He says, it touches on something that is more sensitive and more serious than people would like to admit. I see a woman who wants to live her life without being harassed by an ex-boyfriend or an ex-husband or an ex-anything. You may not feel sorry for Kim because she's rich and famous, but what she's going through is terrifying to watch. And it shines a spotlight on what so many women go through when they choose to leave a toxic relationship. What we're seeing here is one of the most powerful, one of the most rich women in the world, unable to get her ex to stop texting her, to stop chasing after her, to stop harassing her. Now, I'm going to go on with some more back and forth, but I will say it is more complicated than just that simple sentence because they do share children. So. Sure. That's but that's still, complex. But, he, but he's making yeah. a great point. So Yi challenged Trevor on Instagram, calling him a racial slur, which earned him a 24-hour ban from Instagram. And then Noah went on to respond to that directly to Yi and say, there are few artists who have had more of an impact on me than you, Yi. You took samples and turned them into symphonies. And then Trevor Noah went on to say on Yi's Instagram post before offering several other specific ways the rapper's work had influenced his life. He says, you're an indelible part of my life, he, which is why it breaks my heart to see you like this. I don't care if you support Trump and I don't care if you roast Pete Davidson. I do, however, care when I see you on a path that's dangerously close to peril and pain. 
And Mm. yeah, he goes on to say, as a society, we have to ask ourselves questions. Do we wish to stand by and watch a car crash when we thought we saw it coming? Or do we want to say at least, hey, slow down. Let's all put our hazards on because there's a storm right now and some shit might go down. So again, that goes back to what you were talking about in Kim's message is, yes, let's not just say that there's nothing that we can do, but I do think you have to manage your expectations and also manage the understanding of what you are capable of doing or what is capable of being done in a situation like that. Yeah, I think Trevor Noah really put words to what a lot of people were feeling. And obviously he has the platform to do that. And unfortunately it got some attention to where he got tangled into it a bit. And, you know, gosh, there's so many veins that we could go down and branches of this conversation today. And, you know, he chose to kind of frame this as toxic relationships. And I think all I want to say about that is that toxic relationships can be the output of a lot of different things. Some of them mental illness, probably the majority of them mental illness, but lots of other things as well and different types of mental illness. Exactly. Not necessarily mood disorders like we're talking about today. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Right. For all of this, I will say that, again, I do think Kanye has used his platform in very appropriate ways at times to discuss some really important issues that are not discussed enough, especially in our arena of mental health, like... One, men just not talking about mental illness and him trying to do away with the stigma there, the lack of mental health services and the discrimination in the medical field when it comes to Black patients, I think has been a really important topic for him to address and how his diagnosis has clearly driven him to do some really brilliant things. Yeah. So I, again, I know we say this a lot, but I think... We can all come at this from different perspectives. Of course, Scott and I, you are coming from a a clinical perspective. There are survivors of stalking and IPV that are coming from their perspective. And it's very... All of these perspectives are very valid. We encourage everyone to critically think about this and not just sort of compartmentalize and put certain diagnoses or actions in jars on shelves and say, okay, this is just that. It's, it's much more nuanced. Absolutely. And an umbrella over all of that is that if you find yourself in a situation with someone who is not able to treat you with respect and create safety for you, and in fact is undermining your sense of safety, then it is incumbent upon you to get out. And that's a parsed conversation as well, because I understand mm-hmm. that like some people don't have an ability to get out. However... Right. Your, your view of what you have available to you when you're under stress is going to be very limited. And ultimately, you have to make a decision on, do I live or do I choose to stay in this where I'm going to be in danger? But sure. I mean, I already know that what I've just said is going to get a lot of feedback of like of everything, believe me, that we have, I know mm-hmm. through education, through training, through my own work, that victims of intimate partner violence often many times have been put into a bottleneck of choices where they are not able to leave their situation. This is not one of those situations. This is a situation where these people both have a lot of resources at their disposal. Yeah. And we're not even saying that it escalates to that. So, but let's, let me, let me get some basics down about bipolar disorder. Bipolar disorder is part of a classification of 
diagnoses called mood disorders. And bipolar disorder involves periods of depression matched by periods of emotional activation that can last for days or weeks. Mood shifts in bipolar disorder do not occur within small time frames or a few hours. So I really wanted to put that out there because I really get tired of legit mental challenges, mental illness issues being co-opted as a pop excuse for, oh, I'm so bipolar. Or, oh, I'm so that like, that's oh not God. how it works. It's not a quick, like within a couple 30 minutes shift of moods. That's if a I mood. had a, a dollar for every time a client has come to me and just been like, God, her mood swings are awful. I think she's bipolar. Yeah. I'm like, no, 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 no. Yeah, it gets said like that all the time, which is not helpful. Look, and the emotional activation that I'm talking about is generally framed as what we would quote, unquote, call abnormally elevated happiness, which is not an accurate picture for many individuals who are diagnosed with this disorder. The periods of elevation can begin with like expansiveness and feeling larger than oneself. But it can also include irritability, an overassumption of connectedness with others, of connectedness with concepts, experience, ideas, and religiosity. So depending on the individual and the situation, a full-blown mania can develop with associated symptoms of delusions, which can be themselves grandiose, persecutory, hyper-religious and bizarre. Yeah, not everyone with bipolar experiences the same level of symptoms or the same trajectory at all. I mean, it's so, so varied. However, in certain circumstances, manic phases can lead to psychosis, like you're describing these delusions. A very important thing to note here is that an individual experiencing a manic episode generally lacks the insight into their mania and then exhibits extremely poor judgment regarding really their entire perception of the world around them. That's perfectly stated. Historically, or the the old term that we had for bipolar was manic depression before we got to the DSM standardization. And unfortunately, manic depression continues to be used by some of our professional colleagues who don't stay up to date. No, it doesn't. Oh my God. Yeah, it does. Oh Um, Lord. With their continuing education units. It's like, it's it's (laughs) jaw-dropping when you see them use that. But it's also been, it's it's an older term where, you know, older generations are still more comfortable with saying manic depression because that's what they grew up with. Yeah. And it, I mean, manic depression just kind of calls it what it is, right? It's telling you what the two episodes are. It's not, no, no, not at all. The periods of mania are usually preceded by a lack of need for sleep for days to weeks. For individuals with the more severe forms of bipolar disorder, the risk of suicide is really high. We're talking over a period of 20 years, about 6% of those with bipolar disorder died by suicide, while 30 to 40% engage in some sort of self-harm. Comorbid diagnoses with other mental health issues are very common. We're talking substance abuse disorders, which, you know, we talked about at the top, as we always do, mental illness not being associated with violence unless there are some other risk factors present. One of those risk factors can be substance abuse. Absolutely. And that could be violence towards themselves or violence towards someone else. So suicidality or self-harm behaviors. But substance abuse is also unconscious strategy to self-medicate. Yeah. I see that. Absolutely. Following that point, you know, Mm -hmm. before the legalization of cannabis here in California, it was available for a time for medical use, medical marijuana. And look, in many cases, I mean, you could see billboards all over town of like, 
Dr. Davia or, you know, come get your prescription. And, you know, it's almost like kind of a winking picture of her of like, yeah, you need this for your glaucoma or whatever. Right. And I really consider that a lot of those prescriptions were unethical and unsound in themselves. Those that's a that's an example of, of a physician who is making the decision to act in that way. But at the same time, what I hold is I don't I do think it should be legal. You mm-hmm. know, there are people who abuse nicotine and there are people who abuse alcohol to an extreme extent. And we're going to have exactly the same thing with cannabis, which we are right now. I mean, it is so happening. I'm, I'm sorry, just to be sure, you said you do think cannabis should be illegal? No. Oh, that's be... exactly what I heard in my ear. Oh, no, or my no, 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 no. I, I have I'm no like, problem with it, with it being legal because it, you know, it really comes to, it's a freedom for people to act in a responsible manner. Yeah. And some people follow that really well. And some people don't. Got it. Thank the you. The problem is, is that <laughs> yes. like, here's, here's the parallel I draw or the contrast between cannabis use and say alcohol. So say this is a person who has a substance use issue that with alcohol. Mm -hmm. So they're used to drinking natural light or Pabst or something, right? I'm going to giving the two kind of most watery versions of beer. And then somebody says, hey, try this and hands them a glass of Everclear over ice. Okay. So... We've just taken it from baby aspirin to high-octane rocket fuel, right? In many ways, that is what a lot of the cannabis that is available in the market now is it's so strong compared to what it used to be. And people are using it recreationally and they're using it to self-medicate a lot of things that it's not meant to self-medicate. I'm really depressed, so I'm going to I'm gonna go smoke some weed. It's like, well, that's, that's not going to mm-hmm. help you. That's actually no. going to make it worse. Two rights don't make... Or two wrongs don't make a right. Right. So, yeah, I mean... Okay. Also, you know, I think people would... When we talked about in sort of our timeline of Kanye, like, why would he be hospitalized for psychiatric reasons? We've already touched on a couple of possibilities, right? We talked about psychotic symptoms that come with mania. That could be a reason, but also what we're talking about here, if there was any suicidal ideation or self-harm, that could also be a reason for hospitalization. Although the mental health treatment community has definitely gained more information, research, and insight into bipolar, we still do not have the definitive origin for it. And this is what people always ask, well, like, where does it come from? Because then we can figure out how to fix it. It's currently believed to be a combination of various genetic and environmental factors, like we are finding with just about everything. The genetic component is strongly respected to the higher likelihood of children inheriting the predisposition if there are multiple family members with the diagnosis. So while the causes of bipolar are not clearly understood, both genetics and environment clearly play a role. Bottom line, we know that genetics can account for up to 70 to 90% of the risk of developing bipolar disorder. Yeah, it's one of the things in doing the evaluations that I do is They'll say, oh, this person has no history of mental illness. And then you'll find that there was an aunt or a grandparent or or even if there's a sibling, then that's going to increase the chances even yeah. more. So once again, like, why is this important? Because it goes back to what you said earlier about the potential for suicide 
when there is this level of diagnosis in the family, because there might be environmental factors as well that are contributing to it. There are definitely different classifications within bipolar itself. There's bipolar one, two, and now we have three. The condition classified as bipolar one disorder has to mean that there's been at least one manic episode with or without depressive episodes. So then bipolar 2 disorder is if there's been at least one hypomanic episode, but no full manic episode and one major depressive episode. I know this gets very complex. It seems very weird, but there is a difference between full-blown mania and hypomania. And hypomania is really kind of hard to parse out because sometimes you're just mm-hmm. having a really good day. And you're having a really good week or a really good just month. Just hope you're not being evaluated that day. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then bipolar three is still sometimes called the old term uh, we used to use, which is cyclothymia. And there is in that there is a milder, almost always non-psychotic version of mania that we call, like I said earlier, hypomania that will frequently alternate with brief periods of depression. And when I mean brief, it's still within a few days. It's not like within the same day you're going back and forth. And what's really fascinating is many people with bipolar 3 will never become aware of their condition due to, I guess what I would call successful strategies that they Uh may have had implemented without full awareness. A great example of this is Jane Pauley, the anchor, you know, very respected journalist. She never knew that she had bipolar 3 until she had a medical issue and had to be put on massive amounts of steroids for inflammation. And as a result, the steroids, which can affect your mood, they triggered a hypomanic episode that then went on to give her doctors the ability to give her this diagnosis. It's very interesting how that happens. Very interesting. So essentially, we're talking about bipolar means that you're having highs and you're having lows, you're at two ends of this mood spectrum, enough so, of course, we all have highs and lows, but enough so that it's in a area where we can meet certain criteria for diagnosis. If you're thinking about starting a podcast, let us tell you about Anchor. First off, it's free, and you can record and edit your show through your computer or phone, or import your show from whatever recording software you already use. Anchor will then distribute your show for you so it can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And probably the best part, you can start making money with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to start a podcast from start to finish in one place, and it was a super easy switch for us. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm. So what would that look like behaviorally during the elevated, expansive, and energetic phase of bipolar swings known as mania? These people feel like they are on top of the world. It's very common to experience feelings of creativity, almost like something has just been unlocked and all those creative juices are flowing. And very significantly here, a sense of euphoria much of the time. Very important. Yes. Yes. Very important because that's what I think you were saying earlier is, or maybe I was saying it where there's, there's a lack of insight into the fact that you are experiencing a manic episode, even though some people can, some people can absolutely recognize it. But if you're in this state of euphoria, who gives a shit what I am? I'm just feeling amazing. (laughs) So why this is, if you're experiencing a manic episode that you, you might Exhibit things like talking a mile a minute, sleeping very little, being hyperactive. A lot of times there's increased 
interest in sexual behavior. Honestly, when I teach this in a couple of different schools and when I'm teaching to the jailers, we're talking about these different disorders and how they can sort of recognize some things. A lot of times what you're doing is you're trying to figure out, is this a manic episode or is this person under the influence of a stimulant? And they are almost identical. If you were just to look at the behavior of this person, they can't stop moving. They're talking fast. Their their thoughts are going so fast that they can't keep up with them. Jittery, all the above. And it's very, very similar to being under the influence of something like methamphetamine. I, when I do my teaching with law enforcement, I'll say, just imagine this person is tweaking, but they're tweaking on their own neurochemicals. Their brain is tweaking. It's not that they're taking a substance in. They are just... This is what their body is producing right now. Yeah, yeah. They also may feel like they are just all-powerful, invincible, destined for greatness. Um, They might have in their mind they want to run for president. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Thank you for tying that back. And, you know, look, that is both at the same time fascinating and problematic. Because let's say if you take someone with basically no particularly ingrained talent or ability in any Mm -hmm. way and then has had no training on that basis of talent, then that grandiosity and euphoria are usually shot down pretty quickly. And it's interesting because I will come in contact with people that are manic and they'll be like, I've got the greatest idea for shoes and they're going to have edible flaps so that when you need a snack and blah, 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 blah. I mean, I mean something that's so crazy. Great. But then you'll see, and I, I had a, a wonderful friend years and years ago who passed away by the name of Parker. And Parker was bipolar and chose to not be medicated. And he he has since passed away many, many years ago. But he was an unbelievably prolific painter and we would go in his backyard and he would be covered in paint and have lined up canvases all over the walls of his fence and his thing was bouquets of flowers these incredible like sort of modern interpretations of of flower arrangements and Uh every one of them was unique and different and he would just be up till like you know seven in the morning and each one getting more and more beautiful and you would see this person wow. like manic and he wouldn't stop to eat. He wouldn't stop to drink. It was, it was amazing. But Parker had a lot of talent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, he right. had his mania had the channel to work through. And, you know, if you are talented, like many of the world's most famous artists, writers, creators, then the mania can for a while drive that crackling energy of connection and make these connections between ideas, thoughts, concept that are going to help that individual create their art and they're going to imagine and put together these things that maybe they would have done been able to do without the mania but mm-hmm. other people probably are just not capable of so you can see why some people might not want to manage these spurts of brilliance with medication sure. you know i myself uh, my father who was a world war 2 veteran was in was a very smart guy very funny and also rapid cycling bipolar. And when he, you know, we would track the the trajectory of his manias. Mm-hmm. And at first it would be in a great mood 
and funny and charming and let's go have an adventure and let's go do this and let's go do this. And then it would start to get irritable. And then when you would say, well, like, couldn't we do this? There would be this snapping of like, why do you always shoot down my ideas? Why are you always trying to hold me down? He put a lot of that onto my mom growing up. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my dad was brilliant. Like some of his photography is just jaw-droppingly beautiful. And he sort of was impulsive, but impulsive and charming. So he got away with a lot of stuff where... So it comes off as like spontaneity and exciting. It completely does, but there's also no consistency to it. So what he did was now he had like a a family full of, you know, a spouse and and kids that were walking on eggshells was like, oh, it's happening again. Yeah. So I think that I wanted to use that as a segue into how bipolar looks between men and women. It can look Mm -hmm. very different. And that both of us know it was very, very important to to call out the onset of this disorder can appear much later in women than it does in men, as can schizophrenia. Yeah. So now bipolar and schizophrenia are two completely different things. They're not even in the same category. However, most individuals with bipolar may begin to experience symptoms as early as 15, with a lot more cases now emerging even younger because of the constantly rising levels of stress in our environments. Oh yeah, we will get to that. But it's also been found that women will more often have a seasonal pattern of the mood symptoms than men do. The research also shows that women have rapid cycling, the mixed episodes of mania and depression more often than men do. Also, the version of bipolar that we talk about, it's primarily depressive episodes uh, called bipolar 2. It looks like the research is indicating that that is way more common in women as well. So the presence of more than one issue, whether it's medical or psychiatric, is also more common in women. So again, we use that term mm. comorbid. Yeah. So there's more of a likelihood to be some, for something else to be going on as well. You know, I wonder with that information that you just put out, if that just hasn't really caught up to, you know, we know it takes such an act of God to change anything in the DSM, but I wonder if it hasn't really caught up to the research that suggests that when men suffer from depression, that it's shown in different symptoms, not the traditional things that we kind of look at more of like the anger and the acting out and all of that. And so that stat of women primarily having more of those depressive episodes actually venture to guess that it might be a little bit more equal if we were looking at the right symptoms. That's a great point. Again, it's about stepping out of traditional male role norms and masculine ideology to have a bigger understanding Mm -hmm. of that spectrum of diagnoses. And sometimes the APA does great stuff and other times they're really behind the curve on it. Yeah, yeah. But women generally have a more challenging time recovering from this disorder than men. Really, terribly, women may be more susceptible to a delayed diagnosis and then eventual treatment. And if that wasn't complicated enough, it's really difficult to provide psychopharmacology to women during pregnancy Mm -hmm. and breastfeeding because the mood stabilizers could pose potential risks to the developing fetus and to the infant. If you guys want to go down a lifetime movie rabbit hole, there is a movie called All She Ever Wanted that is the best depiction of a severe case of bipolar in a woman played by Marsha Cross from Desperate Housewives. And she is married to James Marshall from Twin Peaks. And she desperately wants to have a baby and eventually makes a decision to go off of her lithium, I think is what she was on in the film. And 
the depiction of mania, it's, I mean, (laughs) it's a lifetime movie. So it's definitely in your face, over the top obvious. But also if you want just a good idea of what this looks like, you know, he comes home and she's been painting the ceiling all day long and doing this big like Sistine Chapel mural and has made 10 cakes. And then she wants to like jump his bones the second he walks in all to to have a baby because that's been her dream. So... And, but those are things that happen, you know, they, oh yeah, you know, it's, and by interesting note too, you know, Marsha Cross, who started off in soaps, I believe, and was on the original Melrose Place. Oh, you know, that's right. She did not get work for a while and started exploring other careers and got her master's in psychology. She is no an way. MFT. Yeah. Stop it. She went to the same training center. I think she went to the same training center I did and was about to become a full-time therapist. And then Desperate Housewives came along and, you know, she went back nice. into the the seductive world of entertainment. But she's a great <laughs> Wisteria actress. Wisteria Lane. Yeah. Wisteria <laughs> Lane. And following that, like, now let's talk about the other part of after the birth of a child of mm. someone who has mm-hmm. made that decision, this whole postpartum period can also be a really high risk for onset and recurrence of those bipolar phases. But it's important to remember that if they're not going to be breastfeeding, you know, if they're not going to be doing the lactation for the infant, then they can safely go back on their medications, which, right. you know, might be. And a there's good no, option. they haven't said that, like, it's weird to hear this, but I was reading the research and it says that. There's no indication that postpartum depression is more pronounced or worse in individuals who have been diagnosed with bipolar and then have gone off their medication in order to get pregnant and have a child, huh. which I find very odd, but you because well, you would expect it. But I'm, I'm glad that they're looking at that for research purposes because that's important to know. Right. I, I want to encourage people. I had come across a really wonderful sort of mini documentary about a woman living with bipolar disorder. I also show this when I teach now. And it's just so beautifully done because what she did is she sort of tells... She and her husband are sitting down being interviewed and she tells a story about how they met and you know, kind of this love at first sight. And then all these things were going right for her. She had basically met the man she was going to marry. She was graduating from college and was as depressed as ever, you know, the worst depressive episode and ends up getting diagnosed with bipolar disorder. But they have done this wonderful, beautiful project. I don't know if... I don't think he's a photographer. I think they went and they found a photographer. But what they did is they made an art project out of all of the different things that she fills. So there's these beautiful pictures of like creativity. And it's, you know, it's her with like paint splatter all over her. And then there's there's hypersexuality. She's like, which is my favorite, my husband's favorite version of me when I panic. <laughs> um, just these gorgeous, gorgeous photographs. If if you go to her website, which is so bipolar.com, and she also has a presence on social media, just a wonderful advocate, but such a, a cool documentary about how they have taken this thing in their life and put it on display and looked at it head on and figured out, you know, they have kids now and just how this fits into their world and their relationship. And I thought it was just so neat. I wanted to share with people. So, so so bipolar.com. I'll put a a link right in the show notes too. I mean, I mean this in all seriousness. I think you meant to, you were quoting her when you said, Mm -hmm. 
my husband really likes it when I'm in this phase, right? Oh, absolutely. She okay. does say that. Yes, I because was Because it sounded like you were saying it about yourself. And I thought, well, that's kind of revealing. And that's something I would not have known. <laughs> you're like, Shiloh, let's talk. Shiloh, you're we revealing didn't, things we didn't, to me. We okay. didn't put this uh, part in our outline today. What is your best media or fictionalized example that you've enjoyed? I, I would say that it, it's definitely Homeland with Claire Danes. So she plays a character named Carrie Matheson, who is a CIA agent. And there's just a wonderful scene that I think is so picture perfect for looking at mania. And it follows the storyline. The storyline of her bipolar disorder goes all throughout all of the seasons because she's a CIA agent and she has this severe mental illness and she has to keep it under wraps, of course, to keep her job. And conveniently, her sister is a psychiatrist. So, you know, she gets to call her sister over whenever she's sort of spiraling. But there's a scene in the first season where there's a terrorist explosion that she's involved in. So she ends up in the hospital and nobody at her work knows about her mental health disorder and her boss, who's played by Mandy Patinkin, shows up and she's completely manic because she's been hospitalized and not taking her meds. They didn't even know who she was for a while. And she is just like irritability to the 10th degree because the nurse won't give her a green pen to use. And in her mind, she is like, okay, I know how we're going to hunt this terrorist. And she's going a million miles an hour and she's outlining it. And she's like, we got to haul ass back to Langley right now. And he's just, you just see it in his face. He's like, what the fuck is happening? And he tells her, I can't understand you. You're talking very fast. I'm not tracking with your thoughts. And it, it just really hits kind of every... She looks like a complete tweaker. It's really, really a great depiction. And then, of course, there's there's other scenes and, and all throughout. But I just think that one's such a good one because it's the first one where he's let in on her diagnosis and then, you know, what he does with that as far as being her supervisor and her keeping her job. But one I just of think it's great. It is great. I would say... And I didn't watch the show religiously, but the one that I... That stuck with me, the scene, is where she is under a great deal of stress and she's trying to put something together and she has this monologue about, I don't know if I'm becoming manic and I'm seeing something that's not there Mm. or I'm actually using my talent and my abilities to see what is here. And I thought that reminded me so much of working with a client years ago who had a really rigorous safety protocol for herself, where she would say, I have had to teach myself the difference between being in a legitimate good mood Mm -hmm. and a good mood that could easily kick over into mania. And if it's starting to kick over into mania, I turn everything off. I turn off all media. I go, I, you know, turn down the lights. I take everything down. All the stimulus. Everything down. Lower the stimulus and hope that I can ride it out and that my medication is going to kick in and pull everything back to baseline. And I just thought, man, that's a lot of work. And I had, I gave her so much credit for that. And, you know, what I learned from that as a younger clinician is I try and help other clients implement that, but it's really difficult because much like my dad, my dad liked the highs. He's like, why would I take a medication that's going to take this away from me? Yeah, I love this yeah. feeling. It's a great Absolutely. feeling. And then you go, but yeah, you don't like being depressed for five weeks, not being able to get out of bed. 
Right. Like, oh, well, you know, like he wants to brush that away. So <laughs> and and we don't love all of the highs. So. No. Yeah, exactly. It's not so pleasant for us. I really think, and I have mixed feelings about this actor. I don't know why I don't like him because <laughs> he really is talented. But Bradley Cooper in Silver Linings Playbook. Yeah. It doesn't show the more difficult sides of mania, but I think because he has those freaky eyes and he can be very intense. But it's a but it's like this low level intensity that is not threatening to people, but it's uncomfortable to people. Yeah. And I think it's really, really well played because, like we said, not every manic episode looks the same. It looks right. different on different people. And his poor choices at times and his overdoing of things is really um reminiscent of like that lack of judgment and lack of insight when somebody is coming into a manic phase. And then for an old school version of one that I really enjoyed is Sophie's Choice. It's mm-hmm. one of the big twists at the end. There's several twists in the movie Sophie's Choice, but one of them is that Kevin Klein, her, her character's husband in the movie, is not a major scientist working on a breakthrough of a discovery He's like a low-level clerk at a museum, and he has just been keeping up this facade with his mania and his delusional beliefs for years. And she either believes it or she knows he's not real, but she chooses to go along with it. And, you know, again, like many cases, an incredibly smart guy who was very charming Mm -hmm. and but very pushy, and you'd see him shift from that euphoria into irritability with the other characters in the movie. I thought that was very good. Yeah. Interesting that you picked two that are representative of male characters with bipolar disorder. That's good. good. I think that's great. So in summary, I mean, what a literal roller coaster and very turbulent disorder for someone to experience. Absolutely. You know, the, the social media post that I put up last week as a teaser to this episode was of a meme that reads... I hate having bipolar disorder. It's awesome. <laughs> it's also uh, something that Kanye put on one of his album covers, but it started off as a meme. And a follower of ours on Twitter simply replied by saying, I'm bipolar and I think it stinks. Yep. And I loved that just right there in black and white for me to look at was two of an unlimited amount of perspectives of how this could feel for somebody. And I I also want to say, like, I understand people have a right to label themselves however they intend. And this person said, I am bipolar, but please know you are not whatever the thing is that you've been diagnosed with or what cards have been dealt to you. You're so much more. And we see you for all the wonderful contributions that you make or that you have to make in this world. And I I certainly hope that this episode... We're not done yet. Don't worry. I'm not wrapping up the whole thing. But I certainly hope this episode has been informative, but also gentle for people to hear that could be struggling with a number of, of different mental health concerns. Or have family members that you yeah, may now yeah. understand that they may be struggling with something that they're not even really aware of. I always like to circle it back to the frame of exactly what you're saying and pose it like this. Mental illness is a challenge. It is an issue. It is not an identity. Yep. The challenges and the issues and our environment definitely contribute to our identity, but we also have a lot of choice in our identity as well. And I I always want to frame that as like to always find that crack of choice. 
in whatever challenge you have when you feel like you don't have choice. And you may have to, you may have to take a pick and shovel to it, but there is one there. Now, I did want to go on and talk about this issue of celebrity because working in the unit I work with where police and detectives are counseling a lot of people here in LA about stalking Mm -hmm. and a lot of people that we have dealt with are celebrities or influencers. You know, stress is an incredibly potent factor in today's world. It's incredibly, incredibly potent. It is out of control. I feel very strongly about it. I talk about the impact of stress on people all the time. But the impact... And look, I'm not making excuses for bad behavior. And I, too, would like a career where I had literally just bags of money thrown at me. I think it'd be great. But I am old enough and experienced enough to know that while money does fix a lot of things, it does not fix some of the things that it took to make that money. Like, you know, you may have given up things on the way to get there. And the impact of stress on the average Joe or Joan is not like the impact of stress on some celebrities. And some people handle it very well, have great resiliency, and have figured out things that work for them. And others find levels of stress that are really unmanageable. There are several male actors who are not out about having any kind of diagnosis, and yet they pretty regularly have big meltdowns on the sets. They have big meltdowns and, you know, they get recompensated and they come back and they finish their job. And because they are so wildly talented, they keep getting work. But there are celebrities out there that are very open about their diagnosis of bipolar. I'm not going to go through all of them. I am going to mention a few that are very open and have been helpful in putting it out there. Catherine Zeta-Jones has had quite the life, and she's a very talented performer and actress and dancer herself. I feel like she's one of the first ones that I ever remember talking about it. I I think she was one of the first ones that came out on her own. Yeah. Except, you know, who did come out before is definitely Carrie Fisher. Carrie Fisher has been out about it for a very long time. Another, a brilliant stand-up comic. Brilliant, and but not for everybody. Like, I think that this woman (laughs) speaks to a lot of people, but like maybe not to the the audience at large, is Maria Bamford. And she's had a series that lasts for a few seasons on Netflix. She's a stand-up, and she's been a writer on different shows. She's been on Curb Your Enthusiasm, not Curb Your Mm -hmm. Enthusiasm, Arrested Development. Mm -hmm. And she is very open about when her bipolar becomes unmanageable, she checks herself into the hospital. I mean, she just like, I know it's coming on. This is what I have to do. David Harbour from Stranger Things and from Black Widow. He is a very gifted actor himself. He's come out as bipolar. Demi Lovato has been very open about their diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Patty Duke, who is uh, no longer with us, but she was a child actor in the Patty Duke show back in the 60s. She played Helen Keller in The Miracle Worker. She was also horrifically abused by her caregivers as she was taken away from her parents. But she really struggled with bipolar disorder. Her, Her manic phases were very, very severe all throughout her life. Scott Stapp, who is also known as that guy from Creed. Well, you didn't have that in the outline, that guy from Creed. And I was like, is that that guy from Creed? (laughs) It's that guy from Creed. like, who is that? (laughs) You know, who's got the great gravelly voice and he had the awesome biceps and he was always showing them off. The flowing hair. flowing hair. And then he had some, a really rough time of it to that Mm. broke up his band and got him in trouble with the law. And thankfully, he is doing much better now. And then another example of a person who kind of had a very quick onset of celebrity is a guy named Jason Russell, known as the Coney guy. He and his wife 
had done a documentary on Coney, who is the dictator in a small country that was basically a stealing children to go make them fight in the war. It was oh. horrific. And it was like the, the the term for him is the invisible children. And Jason was like really passionate about getting this documentary made and getting it out. And when it went out, it went viral. And he had an episode which they are describing as a brief psychotic break where he was running down the street in San Diego naked and talking to himself and slapping the the sidewalk very adamantly. He was accused of engaging in public masturbation, which was not true because he okay. was filmed the entire time, which is an example of when someone has an episode like this, that's also how quickly something can go viral and also how quickly things can be misinterpreted completely. Oh, totally. So yeah. He was Indecent exposure of... is not public masturbation. Exactly. So he was accused of things that he did not do. And thankfully, he is doing very, very well. We do not know if he has a diagnosis of bipolar. He's never, it was called a brief psychotic episode because from mm. dehydration and exhaustion, which is, I diagnostically, don't understand how they came up with that, but okay. none of my business. I'm glad he's doing better. Yeah. So you guys might think like, okay, we're talking about stress and that's pretty basic <laughs> here, but one of the most common triggers of bipolar episodes is unrelenting stress. So yes. you can start to see how this could be a very bad combination or talking about celebrity status because that has its own unique stressors. Not that we don't all experience stress. It's just unique. It's just different. So here's some some stats for us to kind of get a baseline here. For about half of all Americans, levels of stress are getting worse instead of better. Here's what we know currently. About 33% of people report feeling extreme stress at any given moment. About three quarters of people experience stress that affects their physical health. Mm. About three quarters of people who experience stress say it impacts their mental health. About half of people have trouble sleeping because of stress. And you guys know that I think sleep, optimal sleep is the key to absolutely everything, whether it's emotional, cognitive, physical. So I'm telling you, that's sleep, no good. sleep and hydration Man, fixes a it. lot of things. <laughs> sure does. And then 75% of Americans experience moderate to high stress levels just in the past month, if if you were polling them. And, and 80% of people feel stress at work. So stress is the number one health concern of high school students. And what what's the thing that you always say, Scott, about like the levels of stress we have now compared to like 100 years ago that we would well, like, drop it, dead? Well, if... It's not even 100 years ago. It's that the level of stress that the average high schooler feels in today's world would have put an adult in an institution in the 50s. Dear God. Oh my God. And we're, I use the term boiling the frog. We're always like turning things right. up. So we have a 24-hour news cycle and we have unrelenting sound and music and entertainment and stimulation. And our brains were not meant to be stimulated that chronically mm -hmm. all the time. The other big thing is that the loss of work in America from illnesses related to stress goes into the billions of dollars of what it costs the country because wow. we have this really bizarre work ethic here where we just want people to work themselves to death yep. and we criticize them if they're only working, you know, six hours a day, which is really the optimal, from an organizational psychologist will tell you the optimal amount of work that you can get out of someone per day is about six and a half hours. Oh, that sounds amazing. <laughs> six and a half hour work day. I could have 10 jobs if I only work six hours a day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
So this segment of our population that tends to experience uh, particularly high rates of stress include ethnic minorities, women, single parents, and people who are responsible for their family's health care decisions. Sure. Makes sense. Incredibly stressful experiences. Yeah. So all, all those numbers that I mentioned uh, just sort of across America for these folks, there's probably going to be a bump in that because we know that definitely their stress is heightened. So to get into some research looking specifically at the stressors of celebrity, I turned to a couple of resources. Dr. Charles Figley at Tulane University, he was previously at Florida State University, and he looked at this in in a, a research study that he did. And I think he was going to write a book on it. I, clearly, I did not read that book in preparation for this. But I, I thought he had some interesting observations after he conducted his research. A couple of quotes from him. He says, quote, to be a celebrity means to have more than the usual assaults on one's ego. You're very vulnerable to the personal evaluations of other people. And the public is ultimately in control of whether your career continues. So as I was kind of looking at stress and our stress compared to their stress, there are some unique cues there, even though, you know, we might all feel like at some time or another that we can be called out in social media or recorded and it put out there. I don't think that ultimately we think that our career is really in control by the public or are people going to like us enough to have our career continue like it is for celebrities. So what he did is he 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 actually sent out 200 surveys to the top 200 most popular celebrities and he actually got 50 surveys back. So which is sort of fascinating to me that you know he just was able to send out surveys and got responses <laughs> from celebrities and what he did with this information after he put it all together was he essentially formed a list of the top 10 stressors for celebrities. So in ranking order, starting at number one, here are the stressors. Number one, the celebrity press, or what we refer to as a paparazzi. Number two were critics. Number three was threatening letters or calls. So we're already getting into scary territory that doesn't really come with the job or expectations. Four was lack of privacy. Five was constant monitoring of their lives. Six was worry about career plunges. Seven was stalkers specifically. Eight, lack of security. Nine, curious fans. So I don't know if that's just people bugging them if they're out to eat or whatever. And the last one was worries about their children's lives being disrupted in some manner. So he also found that their reactions to stress were... Pretty similar to how humans just react to stress. They talked about things like depression, lack of sleep, crying spells, lack of concentration, stomach problems. So they were starting to see this manifest physically. Paranoia, overspending was one of those ways it sounds like in which they were coping, but that was one of their reactions. And then lack of trust. And then we also saw self hatred was something that came up for them. So again, I know there's what I forget what magazine it is, but I look at this and I go, they're just like us. <laughs> but they've also found ways to cope. And he found that they thought these things were the most helpful to them when they were able to talk to friends or to mental health professionals. Good to hear. When they beefed up their security, they felt better. So having some sense of control 
of being able to address some of these very specific stressors for them. Having friends outside of the business, I love that. And especially because I work with a population that is so homogeneous to be able to tell my police officers, hey, you need some other perspective. You need some people that are not living in this world 24-7 to engage and know what's happening out in the real world. I love this as a, a coping mechanism. Taking ways in which they could protect their children further also alleviated symptoms. Laughing as much as possible. Also finding faith and religion. So having a spirituality element as a coping skill. And here's one that I thought was just hilarious. Getting out of Los Angeles, like physically having to remove themselves. Yeah, just (laughs) changing the scenery. It totally makes sense. I mean, I need that. And I love this city and I have nothing to do with Hollywood. He also, to kind of hit home is, is how this, he was hearing stories of how this would impact the families. He noted one personal story of a well-known celebrity who said that he vividly remembers a painful moment when the family was just going to go out for pizza. And his youngest child turned to his wife and said, does dad have to come? Because he just knew it was going to be uncomfortable and a nightmare because of his father's celebrity. So I thought that was so sad. that (laughs) This kid just wants to go out for pizza and just be a normal family. Well, yeah. And he realizes that he is not getting the experience that his friends have or... Yeah. That's got to be exhausting. Yeah. There's another researcher, Jib Fowles, who was a professor of media studies at the University of Houston, Clear Lake, and also the author of Starstruck, Celebrity Performers in the American Public. He found in a study of 100 stars and celebrities from all sorts of fields, sports stars, musicians, Hollywood entertainers, that very disturbingly, celebrities are almost four times more likely to die by suicide than the average American. Wow. I thought that was I didn't I didn't even conceptualize it. I didn't either. I didn't know I that's mean, news to me. I thought, well, yeah, of course we hear about it and it's high profile when it happens, but no, a lot of people die by suicide in the general population too. But this is this was astounding. Also very troubling. He found that the average age of death for celebrities overall was 58 years old in compared to an average age of 72 years old for other Americans. Wow. So similar to what we see with different career choices, right? Like the toll that it takes, like this is this is very similar to the the death the age of death for law enforcement officers. I mean, in general they live That's crazy. 26 years less or not as long as as other folks and you think about the like stress is literally a killer. I mean, it really, really is. Regarding substance abuse and looking at at some of the research there, I I think it's an interesting note. I don't think, well, I didn't think this about, you know, suicidal ideation either, but I didn't think that celebrities dealt with substance abuse more than sort of the general population. But again, we're privy to sort of the rise and fall of individuals in the spotlight. So we're seeing it, we're seeing their struggles, but there's a professor of psychiatry at UCLA's medical school, David Wellish. And he was commenting on a particular very well-known actor's open struggles with substances. And he noted that, you know, he probably has two of the risk factors associated with alcohol abuse, a genetic predisposition because this actor had talked about his father's alcoholism And the environmental influence from childhood where at least one parent was modeling addictive behaviors. But this researcher also went on to say that 
because of his occupation or because of celebrity and being a very gifted working actor. He also possesses a third risk factor, which Dr. Wellish calls a crisis of mobility, meaning that a celebrity's fame transports them from really one world to another. And he says, quote, he knew how to act when he was the son of a welder, but then he became a stranger in a strange land. His life had at some level lost its bearings. Drugs can be a stabilizer, at least temporarily, providing anxiety reduction, feelings of omnipotence and power, or a soothing deep peace, otherwise unattainable. So he's kind of looking at this other way in which, you know, it's a risk factor to be transported either because you're an actor and you're literally you know, becoming other people or because you're just being transported into a totally different world that I thought was so interesting. I think it's also a gentle way to frame that of transporting. It's more like Mm. you're ripped from your world and you're thrust (laughs) into another one. Much like when we were talking about matricide or infanticide, you use the example of Medea in Greek mythology. And then we were beautifully, beautifully corrected by a professor Right. Of classics saying, you know, no, look at it, the frame. This woman was completely taken out of her environment. And it's the same thing. I mean, you think about, I mean, I don't, you know what? I don't even want to name names because there are so many that are tragic. They're like wonderful actor celebrity couples and mm-hmm. they'll have kids and one kid will be really high functioning and the other one will have just, you know, gone down that hole. And it's just, I know who I'm thinking ever, of, but uh, probably. <laughs> So just additioning, like I was just doing sort of the pop version research of what you did. You got the actual, legit surveys. But in looking at sort of the popular media around this, they they do say about like the relationship stress is a big deal. Um, you're worrying about the safety of your family and the quality of the relationships that you have with your family members. I think there's a great scene and is it Notting Hill with Julie Hugh Grant Roberts. and Julia Roberts? Is that yeah. it? Yeah. Okay. There's a great scene where she, he goes to see her on a movie set and he is listening in on her microphone because the sound person has given him headphones. And she hears him say, because an actor comes up and goes, hey, hey who's that guy over there that's um, that came in with you? Uh-huh. And she goes, oh, it's just some guy. And he's so insulted by that. And she has to explain to him later on, like, I live under a magnifying glass. Yeah. And I, you know, I have to protect myself and I have to protect you. And this is what I have to do. And you took it personally. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's very interesting conversation. Yeah. Look, there's another part that wasn't brought up in what you were saying, but image maintenance is really important too. The stress of image maintenance is really huge. Celebrities depend on their physical look many times. Many are invested, especially in their younger years of looking good all the time. And, you know, a lot of public consumption of media has a lot of trolls in it. And people enjoy reveling in another person's pain. Like, there's a a photo of an actress who was very popular from her teens all the way into her mid-30s. And then she disappeared and went and had a life. Or we don't know anything about her life because she's been very private. Mm -hmm. Well, she looks very, very different now. Very, very different. She's a 55-year-old woman. And... You know, on one hand, people were saying, hey, leave her alone while they were posting the photograph. Sure. Well, like, why not just give her some privacy? But, you know, it's not a particularly flattering photograph. But, Mm -hmm. you know, like another example of just constant observation and invasion of privacy. 
Another issue is that, and you know me, like you are one of my dearest, dearest friends in the whole world. And you know that there are certain things that trigger me and will get me reactive. And I may pop off in public and then I recalibrate and I'm fine. But the stakes are not very high for me. And I have a good level of control for celebrities with every eye on them and cameras everywhere. One misunderstood statement, one misstep, and it could be a career ender. And we have seen examples of this. That is a constant source of pressure that never existed before the advent of social media. I mean, of course, paparazzi have always wanted to catch you looking like an idiot, you know, but yeah. And then stalkers, just basically like that unwanted attention working in the unit I do. I see a constant stream of performers, actors, personalities, both legit and sketchy. I mean, there are some that are sketchy that are nothing but influencers. And I don't, you know, they're basically pushing diarrhea tea for what it's worth, but they are known and they are out there. Their images out there, details of their lives are out there and they are now being exposed to a lot of attention, some of which is unhealthy, that can then be translated into danger. And every year, between two and three million temporary restraining orders are put into effect in the U.S. Not just in, you know, so that's not just just in L.A. That'd be a lot even for L.A. But across the country, that's, that's pretty, pretty impressive. If that were all LA, we would all have restraining orders against each other. Yeah. And I think that people going into it, like the, the, you don't, you may go into it because you want to be an actor and you want to be a performer. You don't necessarily go into it to be a star, but there are some people that go into like, I want to be known Mm -hmm. and I want to be seen and I want to be famous and I want to be rich. And the way I'm going to do it is I'm going to learn how to be this thing. Right. But even then you don't really understand what you're trading it for. You know, you are trading it for this glamour, this sort of false image of what that looks like. And then, okay, now you're signed up, you're famous, you're rich, and you're going to all the glamorous stuff. And you're, you know, as a woman, you're stuffing yourself into three pairs of Spanx in order to get into that gown that was picked for you by this whole entourage that stood and stared at you naked, trying to figure out what's going to look best for you. I mean, there's just like this level exhausting. Yeah. There's a level and I'm sure some people revel in it. I'm sure some people do, but there, I'm, there are just as many people and people that I've have counseled myself that have come in and said, I really didn't know what I was getting into. Sure. Sure. I think, yeah, I, I think people sit back and go, well, how could they not? And if you are so, fixated on your craft, let's say not the person that just wants to be a star, but really is just into their work and wanting to be at the top of their game. The the hyper focus you have to have and the energy just for that probably doesn't leave a lot of bandwidth to go, okay, wait, let me really consider if this happens. Because how unfair is it that you have to conceptualize that success comes with this other really shitty thing? Right. You almost would not want to have to think about that until you have to think about it. Or you um, think about it in a safe and superficial yeah, way of like, oh, yeah. it's got to be rough, but it'll be okay. Yeah, Not understanding sure. is like, no, this is that horror movie, It Follows, <laughs> that just is <laughs> always there a few steps behind you wherever you go, mm, you know? Yeah. So yeah. talk about coping. You had a great quote about coping skills. I just love that I was able to find a way that some women cope with celebrity. Um, so. Michelle Pfeiffer, she famously has said that she actually, she acts for free, but what she does is she charges for the inconvenience of being a celebrity. So I thought that was a fun way to put it. I love that. Sarah Jessica Parker learned that 
she really has to employ basically a self-appointed sabbatical from filming in order to just feel like a normal person and feel like a mom and see her family and do normal things like go to the market and cook every single day. She allows herself that that separation time. Sharon Stone, she she had been for a while, I think was known for being pretty transparent about a lot of things, but I bet that got old as well because she ended up proclaiming that she made a policy for herself somewhere along the way where she says, quote, I have a life of my own, just a little tiny one, but it's mine. And I just love how these women have sort of figured out how to make it work, at least what's best for them. And it's it's sort of what we talk about like when we talk about work-life balance. I hate that word again. I like work-life blend. Like what is the best blend for you? Because it should be individualized. Some is going to demand more from you than the other. And I think celebrities one where your job could just... If you don't put up parameters, will just take, 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 take from you, especially if you're successful. Yeah. So if you're Sarah Jessica Parker status to be able to go... No, I'm I'm taking these planned breaks to be the person that I truly am. I completely commend that they figured that out. I wish there were, you know, when people were getting into a new movie, or I think we talked about this with child actors, if they could just be set up with like, hey, think about these things. How are you going to cope? What are going to be your mechanisms? How are you going to make this work for you on the front end? You know, that would be really nice. But I think in closing, there is a lot that we've sort of figured out that, yeah, they are just like us. There are stressors there, although they're from a different source and they're conducted in a fishbowl, but they also feel the same things that we do and they have the same symptoms as the rest of us. And some find destructive ways of dealing with it or some find really helpful ways of dealing with it. And they're also not who you think they are. Mm. Don't ever make the assumption that you understand, Yeah, you know, whether you like them or you don't like them, you're only seeing one facet of a very multifaceted jewel as we all are, you know, because we present one thing. And I think it gets even more confusing for celebrities because they become representative of something that we may want to be a part of, or we want to be able to relate to. And if we witness them doing something that reflects in contrast to the way we want it to be, we can have a very primitive reaction to that when they're just people. You know, there are people that are, and they might have like crazy views and crazy beliefs on things that you're like, oh God, I don't want to, like, that's weird. But enjoy them for the performances that they give. Right. All right. We did it. We did it. Welcome back. (laughs) Yes. It's good, good to be back and diving into something juicy like this. So we'll have to figure out what we have up our sleeve next. We have two more episodes before Crime Con. So I know we at least want to get something sort of Las Vegas themed in there along the way. But we have a running list, you guys. Continue to send us your ideas. People have such excellent, excellent questions and ideas and topics that, hey, we'll be in your ear holes for a while because we got a lot to go through. Absolutely. And um, check us out. We'll be doing a Get Vocal this week. Yeah. Check us out. Four o'clock Saturday live stream over on Get Vocal. You can also see it on Facebook and Twitter. We'll be live streaming there. But if you're there, you can't join in the chat room. You can't jump on live with us and chat. So yeah, 
do that. It'd be fun. All right, Scott, we did it. All right. Thank you, Dr. Shiloh. Yeah, absolutely. We will see everyone next time on LA. Not so. Confidential. Bye, folks. Stay safe. Bye-bye. Sincerely, thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network. Each episode is hosted, produced, and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our podcast production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Esri of Ear Cult Productions. The LA Not So Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is used via a Creative Commons attribution license. Cool Vibes is composed and performed by Kevin McLeod, who graciously allows us to use his great music. Please check out his amazing work on YouTube. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Please hit follow so you never miss a new episode. Lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast so you can be the first to be notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening, and please join us each Saturday afternoon following the episode drop for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on Get Vocal entitled Behind the Couch. Thanks for listening, and join us next time.